We're in a series in the book of Galatians, and whenever you come and you enter into the middle of an argument, or the middle of a letter, it's helpful to know where you are in the letter. So let me explain to us where we are in the letter. I'm going to read that portion of the letter, and then we're going to think together about what it means and what it matters for us. So the Judaizers, those are people who believe that you were saved not merely by faith, but you were also saved by doing what Moses commanded them to do. The Judaizers came into town in Galatia and said to them, ah, uh-uh, Paul was not educated enough. He didn't tell you the whole picture. To which Paul writes them a letter and comes in white hot with rebuke. And he says, The gospel I preached to you was the gospel. And if anybody preaches to you another gospel, I don't care how gifted an orator they are, or even if an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches to you other than a gospel, to the one I preach to you, let them be accursed, cut off, separated. And then Paul argues that he's an apostle, that Peter, James, and John affirmed him as an apostle, and that the gospel that he preached was the same gospel they preached. And they sent him to the Gentiles while Peter went to the Jews. In fact, Paul was the one who confronted Peter about the gospel whenever Peter was found to be duplicitous and backing off in his racism, eating with Gentiles, seeing the Jews and becoming afraid of them. And he backs off and pretends like he didn't know the Gentiles. And then Paul says, and then he says last week, He says, guys, you know this from your own experience. When you first became Christians, when the Spirit opened your heart to believe the gospel, did you receive that Spirit because of works or by faith? By faith. Why then are you living as though you were saved by works? Don't be foolish. And then he turns from talking about your experience proving to you that you were saved by faith. Then he goes to the Old Testament. And this is where we read in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, and we'll go down through verse 14. But I've given you 1 through 14 in your bulletin so that you can follow the context. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by works of the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. All right, I'm just gonna give you the principle of the text and then we're gonna talk about it together before we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Here's the principle. Abraham is a case study. He is an example that Paul uses. He's a case study. To illustrate that good, moral, religious people who do good things, great things, who do good things to try to reach heaven are under a curse. And the bad, the broken, the sinners who know they don't deserve heaven are blessed. Okay? Let me say it again. The good, moral, religious people who do good things in order to try to enter into heaven are actually cursed. And those who are bad, broken by their sin, know they do not deserve heaven. They're actually blessed. Now, in this passage of Galatians, Paul is a master debater. The people who are arguing with him are saying, Aha! We follow Moses, not Paul. And Moses said that you have to live by the law in order to be saved. To which Paul says, guys, that was never what Moses meant. But Paul says, you think Moses, you think Moses walked across the Red Sea by works? You think the mountain of water on either side of him, he did that because of works? No, he did that by faith. But Paul doesn't use Moses as the case study because Paul does not want to get entrapped into the nuances of the Old Testament with these guys. They love the law. So Paul goes further back even. He says, I don't want to talk about Moses. I want to talk about the father of Moses. I want to talk about the father of the Jews, namely Abraham. And so Paul uses Abraham. And when he uses Abraham, he essentially says to them, listen, How was Abraham saved? What was the gospel to Abraham? What is the blessing of Abraham? Who gets that blessing? Who gets those curses? And what could really happen to you, Galatia, Trinity, if you got this? If you took it in, if you understood it, if you lived it, if you believed it? Hmm? So, what was the gospel to Abraham? What is the blessing? Who gets that blessing? Who gets the curses? And what would happen if we really got this? I know it's not three points, it's five. They'll be brief, I promise. But pay attention and let's look at the text together as we study. First, what was the gospel to Abraham? Notice what Paul says. Look with me at verse six. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote directly from the passage that Maggie read for us earlier in in Genesis 15, verse 6. Do you remember the story of Abraham? Kiddos, do you remember the story of Abraham? Remember he had a brother, Nahor. He had a father, Turan, who was a moon worshiper. Not exactly a Christian, I would say. He was a pagan moon worshiper. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, yes, Lord, look up in the sky. All I see are stars, Lord, yes. I'm going to give you more children than the stars in the sky. 
That was the gospel proclamation to Abraham. Do you believe me, Abraham? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a posterity that is greater than anything you could imagine. And Abraham, at that moment, what did he do? He believed. He believed God at his word. That was the promise to Abraham. What did it contain? It contained a promise. I will give you more children than there are stars in the sky. There it was. There was the promise. What did Abraham do? He didn't work for it. He didn't go get circumcised. He didn't obey the law. Those two things didn't even exist then. He believed. And then what happened as a result? God's view of Abraham changed instantaneously at that moment. Now, did Abraham become a more holy, righteous, moral person at that moment? Did he? No. At that moment, the only thing different about Abraham was Abraham, son of a moon worshiper, pagan. Two, a change of view. Abraham, my chosen one, righteous and holy in my sight. It's important to understand the gospel to Abraham because it's the same gospel to you and to me. The gospel to you and to me is not clean yourself up, go to church on Sunday, become a better person, become more moral, and then, and then, if you've really paid your dues, then God will reward you with salvation. That's never the gospel. The gospel has always been God gives us a promise. We believe the content of that promise, and God changes his view of us, which we know is the meaning of the term justification in the New Testament. That you are justified in God's sight. No longer are you evil, now you are righteous. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It wasn't long ago when somebody came to me and they were really distraught because they had seen a believer who was just acting in a way that was very, you know, frankly, it seemed very pagan to them. They they professed faith in Jesus, but they were struggling over sin in a way that was really, really, um, it just bothered them. And they came, they wanted to talk about it. Like, this bothers us. Like, we, we don't understand it. And it was a great opportunity for us to say, what is the gospel? Is the gospel that this person will become morally better That's a fruit of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the Lord has changed their view of that person because of their faith. That's the heart of the gospel. Because, as I said to them, you should have seen this person six months ago. You think they're bad now? Oh, my gosh. So sanctification is always progressive, and we're all on different rates. And so you can't compare yourself to each other. I am more holy. You should encourage each other to walk in righteousness according to God's law, his moral law. Yes, but that is not what chiefly makes you a Christian. What chiefly makes you a Christian is that you have a new status. That was the gospel to Abraham. What was the blessing to Abraham? Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 8. Lower your eyes and look at verse 8. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. If you use a pen in your Bible or a pencil, circle the word justify. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now here Paul quotes Genesis 12, 3. We have to get into the weeds here because this is where Galatians takes us. So stay with me. 
He quotes Genesis 12, 3, and he equates the word blessed, blessed in, in Genesis 12, 3, with the word justify in Galatians 3, 8. So what does it mean to be blessed? That Paul would justify the Galatians by faith. So the blessing is justification. It's not land. It's not children. It's not a change of circumstances. To be blessed means that you are made right in relationship to God. That is what it means to be blessed. And Paul's argument is, listen, you guys are trying to get these Gentiles to like get their lives straight with God by keeping the dietary laws, by circumcising their children, by doing all the things the law commanded. And Paul was saying, they are already blessed. They're in. Not because they keep the law. Nobody's blessed because they keep the law. But you are justified only when God changes his view of you, which happens by the means of faith alone. Do you see Paul's argument here? You're not saved by works of the law. And the Gentiles who you think are outside are actually, they're already in because they trust in the promises preached to them. You're in. You're already blessed. And those who are using the law like a railroad track the law was meant to drive you to a destination who pulled that railroad track up and leaned it against the door of heaven to climb the rungs as though they're trying to get into heaven by following the law. The people who do that, they're actually out because justification can only come by faith, not by works of the law. Abraham is the example of this. You think Moses is a good example? Ah, oh, well, let's go back to see who the father of Moses was. Abraham, before the law was ever given, the gospel was by faith. It's always been by faith. So the blessing is your justification. Now, who gets the blessing? It's a good question. Who gets that blessing? Notice carefully, Paul talks all about these blessings and these curses. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, he talks about the curse of the law because the law was given to be a diagnostic, to show us our need for Jesus. And when you use the law as a way to try to get into heaven by cleaning your life up, by giving money to charity, by being a good moral person, that becomes the avenue by which you're trying to earn your way into heaven. It is an a illustration of how cursed you actually are. This whole idea of blessings and curses is always given in Scripture in a relationship setting. It's never abstract. The law is never abstract. It's always meant to illustrate a relationship. So, who gets the blessing? People who believe by faith alone, get the blessing. They are the true sons of Abraham. Not those who circumcise themselves. What does that mean for us? It means that you can have somebody who's been to church all of your life stay, sitting in our seats with us. 
been to church all our life, can tell you all 66 books of the Bible, can tell you all 10 commandments, can tell you all the 12 apostles, can tell you everything you want to know, every Sunday school answer you know. And you can have someone who has sold their body for sex for years, who is broken by the gospel, sitting right next to them in church, who knows that they are a bad person, who knows they are morally bankrupt and rest on Jesus' righteousness. You have a person who feels like they are walking well, God loves them because they are in his favor because of what they've done, been to church all their life, or you have someone who is heinous by every definition perhaps we might give of somebody who would be a sinner. Who in God's eyes is actually righteous? Always the person who trusts by faith in Jesus' work. I told this story before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but when we lived in Dallas, there was a 10th Circuit judge that was there. He went to the church we were, a very well-known judge. And there was a man who he had had in the courtroom, who he had sentenced to murder at some point in the past. And we were walking up to communion in this church. It's a very, very large church. And there, there was a man who had a felony on his record, who had been convicted of murder by the exact same judge who was also walking forward for communion. And the elder, I was just behind this judge, and the elder said to him, can you believe that this man is here worshiping with us? And the judge says, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how the gospel could save even a righteous person like me and take somebody like him? And he views us both the same. There's no difference in God's eyes. A friend of mine works out every week with a personal trainer, and this personal trainer had started uh, working out two women on um, other days besides when he was with them. And uh, one of these women was um, a nun. This is not a joke. And one of these women was a recovering prostitute. And the nun was extremely tense and anxious. She was always worried. She was always really heavy and weighed down. And this prostitute began to have conversations with this trainer about the gospel, and she became a Christian. And they would work out, and they began to work out together. And he said the irony of it was this former prostitute who understood grace was amazingly free in the gospel and understood what she had been delivered from, whereas this nun who lived all of her life in the cloister of the church actually was incredible, in incredible bondage because she did not understand grace. Friends, we want to be a church where people who are struggling sexually can come. We want to be a church where people who are struggling with sin can come, where we can admit that every single one of us struggle with sin, that that, in fact, is a healthy sign of your sanctification, that you can admit that you're broken. In fact, the worst thing that you can say is that you've got your life all together, and we can say that we gladly welcome, our hands are wide open to struggling sinners. The only requirement that you need to have to come in and enjoy worshiping with us is that you are a broken sinner. If you're not, it's going to frustrate you because you're going to keep hearing sermons about how the self-righteous are out and the broken sinners are in when they know that they need Jesus. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Are they those who are descendants by, from Abraham by physical descent? No. Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3, 10 to 14, that they are those who trust in 
God's promises by faith, who are his spiritual descendants. And that means that you and I are included in that as well. So the gospel to Abraham, what is the blessing? It's our justification. What about all these curses? Those who trust in Christ's finished work alone receive the blessing. Those who use the law as some kind of step measure to earn God's favor are under the curse of the law. Who gets the blessing? Those who trust in him. Who gets the curses? Those who refuse to trust in him and keep leaning on their own works. Whenever a couple comes to uh, me and Lauren who are dating, they'll come to us and say, hey, we've been dating for a while. We're thinking about getting married. And we always have the same line for them. We always say, you should go to dinner with three couples. If you've ever been through premarital counseling with me, you guys know this, you've heard this before. You go to dinner with three couples. You go find someone who is newly married. You find somebody who has children and you find somebody who's an empty nester. And you can use us if you want to as an excuse but you ask them every question you can think of about their life and their marriage and the way they do their marriage and the way that it operates. Just go have fun. Go ask questions. And so to illustrate the, the idea that a covenant is always relational, like a marriage covenant is always relational, imagine that if these, these two, this young couple comes back to us and says, we've, we've watched these three couples. We've learned from them. And now they turn toward each other and they say, and now, honey, I want you to know I want, I want to share with you three things that are really, really important to me. So he, they say, first one is that I, I want to have four or five kids. I want to have a big family. To which the other person says, now I, I hear that, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't want kids. I don't want children. I want to be free. I want to be able to not be pinned down by children. I want to be able to go and serve and work and contribute my time to other places. I don't want to have kids. Now, now honey, I, I, I work and you work. We're going to make a lot of money together. I want to, I want to give our money away. I, I want to really be generous with our money. Like, I want to live way below our means. To which the other person says, now, I don't know about that. I mean, we're going to make a lot of money, so like, it's like, let's spend it. Like, I want to have two or maybe three houses. I want to have a lake house. I want to have a ski lodge, and then maybe I can buy a ranch. And it's important to me to have those things. In fact, I'm willing to go into debt if necessary in order to afford it. Now, honey, one more thing. I really, really want our kids to be in good school, so I want to live in the suburbs. I want to have a bigger house. I want to have more land. No, 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 no. That's fine with you, but I'm living downtown Tulsa. I want a loft. I want a high-rise. Now, they say to each other, now that we've gotten all that out of the way, he gets in on one knee and he says, honey, will you marry me? To which she obviously says, no, of course not. Why? Because every relationship has rules and has covenants. Every relationship you've ever had has rules and has covenants. You have rules relative to the way that you operate as a citizen of the U.S. You have rules in relationship to your own marriage if you're married. Listen, you can't just go trample on your spouse. There are rules. You can't just go live however you want to. There are rules. You break the rules. You break the covenant, right? That's true. Now, you can get trampled over. 
Like you can, you can just say, well, whatever happens, I'm going to keep the covenant. You can do that. You can do that. You know what that's called? It's called codependency. And there's a lot of it. What Paul is saying here is, guys, the law must be kept. And the only way that it was kept was Jesus, verse 13, was the cross. The only way that it could have possibly been kept was that Jesus became the curse for us. That though we broke that covenant, Jesus was not just our example. He was not just somebody who suffered the punishment for our sin, but Jesus took our place. He was a substitute for us. And John Stott wrote an entire book on Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Listen, if you have somebody who's an acquaintance of you who says to you, I'm cutting you off. I'm no longer going to be a friend with you. Like that stings. Nobody likes that. If you have a friend of yours who says that, who says, I'm, we're done, no more, I'm cutting you off. Now that hurts. What if it was your best friend? What if it was your spouse? Nobody could hurt me more if they said I cut you off than if Lauren were to say that to me. Why? Because she's my best friend. Now, what happened on the cross? Jesus and his Father were infinitely closer than anything you can imagine. For all eternity, they had been close. And you know how Jesus always referred to his Father? Always and everywhere, he refers to him how? As my Father, Abba, Daddy. Except for one time, and where was that one time? It was on the cross. Because on the cross, when it says, what does it mean when it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse? Not like a curse, not an example for us. He became a curse, which means that at that moment, Jesus cries out, oh, my father, why have you forsaken me? No, no. He says, no, oh, my God. Because for the first time in Jesus' life, Jesus experienced the weight of all of your sin and all of mine. And he took the crushing blow of being cursed and cut off. It was worse than you could imagine. Jesus was isolated. He was totally cut off. He was lonely in the misery, which is what C.S. Lewis, by the way, says is hell. The Apostles' Creed says, right, he descended into hell. There he was on the cross, feeling the full weight of hell, isolated completely from his father's gaze. Lewis says that hell is like a gray town where everybody just gets what they want, and what they want is to be further and further away from everybody else. He actually kind of compares it to a suburb, which is a little depressing. But if you, the suburb endlessly continued, he said Napoleon, for example. Napoleon was found 15,000 light years away from the city center in a house. And when you go and you visit him, you just see him pacing back and forth, blaming everything in his life that had happened on somebody else, eating himself up, getting what he always wanted. And he's devouring himself. That's hell. Isolation, misery, misery 
complete loneliness away from your father's affection. That's the way Lewis describes it at least. And here on the cross, Jesus experiences that for you. He takes on the curse of the law for you so that you might not have to receive it. So Galatians, people of Trinity, come again and again and again to this meal. Come as a broken sinner to this meal to be brought again to Jesus' presence, to be nourished and to be strengthened because he suffered the curse for you. He was fully man so he could be a suitable substitute for you. He was fully God so that he could pay the infinite debt that you deserved. What could you add to that? Nothing. So for those of you who are suffering, listen, for those of you who are suffering, there's a story in Luke chapter 10. There's a story in Luke 10, 17 about, remember how Jesus sent his disciples out and they come back and they said, listen, even the demons obeyed us. They listened to our name and they obeyed us. This is amazing, the power that we have. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't rejoice in the power that you have. Rejoice instead what? That your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because more than your circumstantial happiness, whatever it may be, whether it's really a difficult time for you or you're like sky high because the stock market is up, your deepest joy comes in knowing that there is something objectively true of you, that you've been declared righteous in the Father's sight. Nobody can take that from you. That is the source of your joy. It is the kernel of the fire within you that moves you out to love and serve the world. Don't put yourself back under a yoke of bondage. Live in light of that. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. They put people on spikes to be a symbol of the curse in the ancient Near East. And they would leave their bodies out to rot. It's a picture of somebody being cursed. After the battle, they'd hang the enemies up. They would strew in the roads with them. Symbol of being cursed. And there Jesus is. Paul says he is hung on the cross. It's a symbol to the world of being accursed for you and for me so that we might be brought in. Friends, come back again to the good news that Jesus is not just our example, he's our substitute. Do not use the law as a way to earn heaven. Don't pull that railroad track up and lean it against heaven and turn it into a ladder. Connect yourself to the engine of Christ who pulls us, he does the pulling to salvation, and rejoice and with glad hearts, run to this table and run to obedience because why would you now want to sin? He's given you everything. Do you see him? Let's prepare for the table by seeing the one who was crucified for us, accursed, hung on the tree for us, with tears in his eyes, with your name on his lips, he did it for you. And on the third day, he conquered death when he rose again from the dead. This is why the Lord calls us Christians. This is our identity as the new covenant people of God. This is a snapshot to the world of what we are becoming in him because we have been declared righteous in his sight. And already we are cleared, but not yet are we fully sanctified until he comes again to make everything new. Rejoice in that as you come to the table, and let's pray. Father, we pray now as we come to the table that you would 
you would recenter our affections on you by reminding us that we did not receive the curse, though we deserved it. But Christ became a curse for us. Thank you, Father, that salvation is by faith, not by works of the law. Break us of our self-saving strategies as we come to this table now. And help us, Father, to rejoice in the power of the Spirit, knowing that you call us your sons and your daughters. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.